in the airway portion of uh, Tim's Takeaway Part 2. And if you haven't heard Part 1, I really suggest you go back and take a, take a listen to that. So this part's going to start off with um, some patient assessment. You know, I kind of struggle with this a little bit um, because the whole idea of a Tim's Takeaway is to kind of give you the highlights of some stuff. And, uh, you know, as I was looking through notes and looking through the book and looking through some uh, things that I think that are important, kind of came back and said, you know, really, should I, how much time should I really spend in patient assessment? And, you know, I kind of realized that, you know, I got to at least cover it a little bit um, because I think it it pertains to some stuff that you're going to see a little bit later on. And uh, hopefully it'll it'll make things meet up. I guess the best way I could put it. So anyway, if you recall, we do um, patient assessment. We look at adequate breathing, right? And if you listen to parts of patient assessment, whether it was in class or you listen to what um, I tell you in a takeaway, is that you know if you know the normals, identifying later on what's abnormal makes life a whole heck of a lot easier, right? So we look at the signs of normal breathing for adults, usually 12 to 20 breaths a minute. You know, 10's not too bad. 12 to 20 is considered to be normal. You look for whether or not they have a great pattern, a regular pattern of inhalation and exhalation. They're almost pretty much equal. We listen for bilateral clear and equal lung sounds. So we want to be able to listen to lung sounds or breath sounds on both sides, the right and the left. And remember when you're going through an assessment, Wherever you put the stethoscope on the right, you then go and put it on the left, and then you bounce back and forth. That's the way that you're going to listen to breath sounds. You also look for regular and equal chest rise and fall, and then we look for adequate depth, because when we look for adequate depth in that chest rise and fall, we're actually starting to measure tidal volume. Well, yeah, while we're not putting real numbers on it, you can really start to identify whether or not somebody's struggling to breathe. Which leads us down to, what do you mean by abnormal breathing? Well, maybe they're breathing slower than 12 breaths a minute. Maybe they're breathing greater than 20, and they also have some shortness of breath. So people can be breathing greater than 20 times a minute and really not be short of breath, at least per se. But, you know, it's not always a black and white role. Oh my gosh, they're over 20, what am I going to do? Or they're breathing less than 8, I need to do this. Those are guidelines. They're, they're things that are instilled in your mind to make you think about, critically think about what's going on with the patient. You want to look for irregular rhythms that the patient may have. And we're going to talk about those here in a minute. You want to listen to see whether or not there's noisy breath sounds or they're absent or maybe they're diminished. What about the amount of air that's actually being exchanged in and out of the nose and the mouth? Do we notice that there is unequal chest expansion, which is now actually reducing our tidal volume. What about the use of accessory muscles? Are they using an awful lot of them? If they're only breathing shallow, this is telling us that we don't have great tidal volume. What is the issues with, or what are the issues with those? What about skin that is pale? Maybe it's cyanotic. Maybe it's cool. Maybe it's clammy. Those are types of things that we're taking a look at as well. One big area that you can look at is look for retractions. And this is where you may have um, some skin that is pulling in. Usually it's around the ribs, but you may also see it 
in the clavicles, and it's usually occurring during inspiration. Now, there's a lot of times that when patients are going through a lot of this stuff, they experience changes with their respiratory rate or with their ventilatory status. You see differences, right? So I think earlier we talked about regular rhythms. Now let's talk about some irregular rhythms. One of the most common that you're probably seeing, usually related to the fact that people may have their heart stop, right? So they go into cardiac arrest. These folks may have occasional gasping breaths, and those are called agonal gasps or agonal breathing. They're breathing maybe once or twice every 30 to 40 seconds. I mean, there's not a lot of breathing going on, and quite frankly, it's ineffective. Um, and we really, at that point, need to be doing CPR. Here's another one that we can look at. is called chain stokes respirations. And this is usually seen in the patients that may have a stroke or they have some type of head injury. And this is when breathing increases in right in depth of respiration. And then they have a period of apnea um, where they have no breathing at all. Ataxic respirations are where people have irregular or they have no really identifiable pattern. And this is usually related to people that have some type of serious head injuries. There may be also people that are experiencing Kuzmal breathing, where they have some type of metabolic or toxic issue. So you may see this in diabetic patients. And these are deep, rapid respirations. And that usually means that they're in some type of an acidotic um, state. Could be a metabolic acidotic state. If they have any type of inadequate breathing, patients need to be treated immediately. And that's one of the whole reasons that we talk about airway by itself, because we have to treat it. It is really that important. Care here is going to be airway management, supplemental oxygen, and ventilatory support. And this is the stuff that we're going to talk about here very soon as we are wrapping up a little bit of that review for a patient assessment. You know, when we assess these folks, we're looking at um, patients who need um, uh, how well they're ventilating. Are they ventilating appropriately? And if they're not, what is the reason? Why can't we exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide? Well, this may be because maybe they're at higher altitudes. It may be because they are exposed to poisonous gases. They may be in a cl an enclosed space. By the way, when you think of poisonous gases, don't forget about carbon monoxide. One of those big issues, particularly in the winter, um, or in the winter and in the fall, because of all these things that can occur. You know, snow or the first time that people have actually fired up their furnace and stuff like that, right? It's going to create a big issue. So when you look at a patient's level of consciousness, you got to take a look at their skin color and look at how well they're actually perfusing their noodle. How well are they perfusing their brain? It gives us some great information. When you assess patients, you need to consider about their oxygenation. And to do that, you often accomplish this by checking out their pulse oximetry. So their pulse oximetry, otherwise abbreviated most of the time, is an SpO2. It measures the percentage of hemoglobin molecules that are bound in arterial blood. So it requires that there's a pulsatile, uh, there's a pulsation, right? So there has to be a pulsation 
um, that's coming from the artery. And therefore, it is the light that's being absorbed to give you a reading of how much light has been absorbed by the hemoglobin molecules that are bound inside the arterial blood gas or inside the arterial blood. Now, normally, we're talking about 95 to 99, 94 to 99, somewhere in those ranges is where we're considering people to be within the normal range. Obviously, 98 to 100 is something that we usually strive for, but the reality is this. We have seen and we're now seeing a lot of recommendations to say 94 to 99 is something we really want to take a look at. Now, pulse oximetries are a great tool, and that's exactly what they are. They're a tool. You don't go use a screwdriver to pound a nail into wood, and that's not what its purpose is. The same way that a pulse ox is not meant to just take somebody's pulse. It's not meant to just take what their pulse oximeter reading is in relationship to the percentage of hemoglobin. We also have to take a look at our patients and help identify if there's some type of respiratory insufficiency and deal with the patient, not just the monitor. So I think that you might have to take a look um, as I am um, making this podcast for a Tim's takeaway. I think we probably need another Tim's takeaway just on the use of a pulse oximetry. So hopefully... Um, by the time you're doing this, you might find that a little bit later on, there could be a pulse oximeter, Tim's takeaway. Hmm, great idea. Glad I thought of it. Anyway, um, so pulse oximetry, though, remember, it cannot measure the effectiveness of ventilation. And it can't provide you with any more information about any type of cellular metabolism. So enough of that for right now. Let's talk about what we're going to do in relationship to treatment. In this case, we're going to look at a few areas and we're going to take a look at, um, first off, opening up the airway. So if we walk into the room, I need you to think of this with me. And I was going to say, if you're driving your car, don't close your eyes, but otherwise, you know, uh, depending on what you're doing, close your eyes and uh, think of if you walk in to see a patient who's laying on the floor. Okay. So you find out that this patient is laying on the floor. You shake, you shout. There's no response. You've determined that they are unconscious. Um, they have a good, they have a patent airway and they have a pulse and are breathing adequately. fan frickin tastic Put them in a great supine position. And, uh, you know, we have to now determine whether or not we need to address them a little bit further. Right? We got to figure out what's going on. So here's one thing that I like to think of, and hopefully this will relate to things that you do. When I walk in and I have a patient who is unconscious, one of the first things I need to do is to find out if they have a pulse. If they don't have a pulse, I immediately do CPR. If they have a pulse, then it's time to open up the airway. So I have two ways in which I want to open up the airway. I can utilize a head tilt chin lift, or I can utilize that jaw thrust maneuver. Now, the head tilt chin lift is used for people that you don't suspect of having any type of spinal injury. So you put the heel of one hand on their, fore, on, your, on their forehead, and then you apply some firm backward pressure with your palm. And at the same time, you're placing your fingertips from your other hand under the patient's lower jaw, and you lift upward. And this helps you to lift, the, lift and tilt the head backwards. So now you're moving the tongue, which is by the way, the most common cause of 
airway obstruction and you move it out of the way. Now I had mentioned about trauma. Don't forget that trauma can become an issue. If they have a suspicion of trauma, you're suspecting they may have some type of cervical spine injury, they fell from a distance, whatever it may be that you're suspecting, you need to use a jaw thrust maneuver. So in this point, you're usually um, above the patient. You're at the, uh, so they're laying supine on the ground and you're now above their head. You're almost at the superior portion of their head. You put your fingers behind the angles of the lower jaw and then you move it upward. And sometimes you need to use your thumbs to help position that lower jaw. So you're not tilting their head, but what you're doing is because you're moving that lower jaw, the tongue is connected there and therefore it's gonna move out of the way. You may also need to open up the patient's mouth either with either one of these things, right? Jaw thrust or a head tilt chin lift. So even though you've done that, what you need to do is take the tips of your index finger and your thumb and you put them on the patient's teeth. And then you open up, your, open up their mouth by pushing your thumb on the lower teeth and your index finger on the upper teeth. And usually with that pushing motion, it's gonna actually cause the thumbs to cross over each other, almost like you're snapping. And this is a cross finger technique, okay? So you should be practicing this in class. Um, and again, is this is a podcast to kind of help you out and, and take out the uh, a lot of the important take-home messages. This is something that you also need to make sure that you're practicing. Now, suctioning is a uh, technique that we use to keep the airway clear so that we can ventilate patients properly. If you hear somebody gurgling, they probably have some fluid or secretions inside their airway, and that can really cause a problem if it gets into their lungs. So the patient's gonna need to be suctioned. Now we have a couple different types of suctioning equipment that we can use. One is a portable device. Um, a second one would be a hand-operated device. And the last one would be a mounted or a fixed um, uh, unit that is going to be essentially inside the ambulance. Now a portable suction unit has to give enough pressure and flow so that somebody can have their mouth and nose suctioned effectively. Hand-operated suction units are usually disposable. Um, they're pretty efficient and really for the most part, they're relatively inexpensive. Now what I like about the hand-operated suctions is that if you can get one that's small enough to fit inside your first in bag, life's usually a whole heck of a lot better because when you really need the suction unit, it's probably sitting out in the ambulance. You know, that would be that portable suction that you're usually looking for. Now the fixed suction unit is something that gives some type of airflow in which there's a vacuum. And if you kink the tubing, um, even though it's not kinkable, if you kink the tubing, what will happen is, is that you'll see that that should uh, fluctuate up to about 300 millimeters of mercury to make sure that it's appropriate. So if you're utilizing a portable or a fixed unit, you need to make sure that you have wide bore, thick walled, non-kinking tubing, right? I said I, you shouldn't really kink it, but the reality is, is that I can really kink it together, right? Um, just like a hose shouldn't kink, but uh, you know, it gets kinked every now and then. They also, you need to have yank hours. Yank hour tips are the um, rigid um, suction tips. These also have, uh, could be called tonsil tips or yank hour tips. And these are usually larger diameter plastic tips and they're rigid so they don't collapse. 
Now the non-rigid plastic catheters are called French tip catheters. Um, and these are usually used to suction out some liquid or um, their nose um, that's going to be a little bit more difficult for us to get with the, uh, um, with the Yankauer. And all these should be um, with a non-breakable disposable collection bottle. And then we need to make sure that we have some type of water supply. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to have a sink. It means that we need to have some sterile water that is going to be available so that we can rinse out the tips. Anytime that you go to insert any catheter um, for suctioning, you need to make sure that you have the proper size. And to do so means that this is really the same technique as when we measure for an oral pharyngeal airway. Right? So when you go to suction somebody, you um, are always suctioning on the way out. So after you've measured, you can insert the, the, the yank hour tip and then you cover it, cover up the uh, area, and now you're able to suction on the way out. So you should never suction for more than 15 seconds at one time for any adult patient. And uh, for kiddos, for children, it should be no more than 10 seconds. And for infants, it should be no more than five. Remember that suctioning somebody actually pulls oxygen away from you. So as a result, this can cause hypoxia. And when you repeat suctioning, um, the book's going to tell you, and a lot of text, text and other material are going to tell you, you got to make sure that after you suction for that time, you ventilate them for about 10 to 15, or for about two minutes. Well, here's the problem. If they have fluid in the airway, why would you push that fluid in further? Why would you push that fluid into their lungs? You're making the situation worse. So it does create a problem. Um, and this is really one of those critical times in which you're like, oh my gosh, if I can't suction everything out quickly, maybe I need to turn them over on their side and get that, get the, uh, uh, go in with my glove finger and see if I can scoop any of that stuff out quickly. It may take a whole heck of a lot more. So just keep in mind, and as you're going through this, there are some times to break a roll. And when you break a roll, that means that, um, you should have the ability to um, make sure that when you're suctioning somebody, if they still have secretions, it may be more advantageous for you to keep on suctioning because it's the only time to really break a roll. You don't want to push anything back down to the airway. Okay, so you've opened up the airway. Again, the way I'm thinking, I open up the airway, I notice there's nothing in it. And if there is something in it, I need to get something out of it. So I use a suction or roll them over. If everything is good there, now I need to know, do I need to keep their airway open? And if so, what am I going to use? Well, we can look at two things. So the first one that we can look at is called an oropharyngeal airway. And this is designed to go into the upper airway and it keeps the tongue from blocking and collapsing back into the upper airway. Now, it is used in people who are unresponsive, they don't have a gag reflex, and really in this case, if they're not breathing or apneic, this would be great for you to utilize on people. Um, and if they're apneic, then you're gonna end up ventilating them with a bag valve mask, and we'll talk about that one later. You don't use it for anybody who is conscious or has an intact gag reflex. So you got to be careful. Um, if they're unconscious, 
Again, I kind of like the idea that if they're, I hate to say dead, but if they're dead, they have no pulse, great, great idea to go ahead and take a look at that. Um, and if they're really, if they're not breathing, this is somebody that you really got to consider putting an oral airway in. Now, if you don't put in the proper size, it could cause some issues. You may cause airway obstruction or you may push the tongue back further. And now you run into another big issue. Another option um, is going to be a nasopharyngeal airway. And this is used for people who may have an intact gag reflex, but is unable to maintain their own airway and do so spontaneously. So when I think of this, I think of people that may be uh, semi-conscious, which you hear people talk about all the time. Um, these could be people that um, are suffering maybe from, uh, from having a seizure earlier. They may have some type of diabetic issue where their blood sugar is too low. Um, this could be somebody who has had an overdose and is at altered mental status, somebody who may be intoxicated. Those are types of issues that I would think of that I might have to look at for nasopharyngeal airways. We don't want to use these a lot of times in people that have any type of fractured nasal bones. And you're going to hear a lot of controversy as to whether or not we should use these in people who have head injuries. Um, really, the biggest issue here would be is that there's some blood draining from the nose. But um, the bottom line is, is that if you put these in, they've been really proven to be um, uh, non-harming to our patients. So that becomes one of our biggest issues. If you are there to maintain that airway, you know, you have, you can place them in a recovery position and it is a great way to help clear their airway. Um, and if they're not injured and they're breathing, this is one way that you can help them, um, have, maintain their normal respiratory rate and adequate volume or adequate tidal volume. Now, again, we talked about the difference between ventilation, oxygenation, and respiration. And here we're going to look at how well we can administer um, supplemental oxygen to somebody. So if you're going to give oxygen to somebody, these, this is usually identified for people who are hypoxic. Um, they're not getting enough oxygen um, that's supplied to the tissues and the cells of their body. So if we don't get things back in alignment with things such as the heart or central nervous system, lungs, kidneys, they really need a constant supply of oxygen to function normally. So you never want to withhold oxygen to anybody who may be benefiting from it. So how do we help with that? Well, we have oxygen cylinders and there are various types of oxygen cylinders or various sizes. Um, the M cylinder is the M for the main, which means that's the main cylinder that you're going to see on board of an ambulance. The E is going to be a relatively tall feller, um, and that is uh, uh, one way in which we can administer oxygen. And, of course, we have the D, or you will hear also called the, the Jumbo D. Um, there's two types there. One's just a little bit fatter. Um, and those D cylinders are probably the ones that we're going to use most frequently. Anytime that you are handling any type of oxygen cylinder, you need to make sure that they're going to be secured. And they need to be secured so that they are in brackets, um, they're strapped in, they are uh, made sure that they're not going to be able to go flying around anywhere. The um, oxygen cylinders, to for safety's sake, they use a specific pin indexing system. 
And this is a way in which it prevents oxygen regulators from accidentally being connected to the, to the wrong cylinder because, you know, there are other cylinders that are available that uh, we could use in the back of an ambulance and we don't want to give nitrous oxide to somebody when they need oxygen, right? So we need to make sure that the pin systems are going to work properly. Now, your regulator actually um, helps to reduce the cylinder's pressure so that it's more useful for us. And usually this brings it down to about 40 to 70 PSI. It's much higher earlier. Um, so some of our devices will run off of it and it requires 50 PSI. So our regulators do have some um, bypasses that are built into them so that if we need something that's a little higher, we can go ahead and hook up to it. Now, your flow meters are usually things that are attached to the pressure regulator. And um, it, it depends on which ones you're dealing with. The Borgden gauge is one that we usually use all the time. Um, it is something that actually helps to, um, you know, use the flow rate. So you just turn the dial on the side and it gives you the number that you're looking for. And this gives you how many liter flow per minute. If you're using the floating ball type, you go until um, that ball is actually pretty much right in the middle of where that number needs to be. So be aware that oxygen is combustible. While it's not going to blow up or burn, um, it does speed up the combustion process. So any spark um, really can end up causing things to become a flame. We hear about this all the time when we talk about people that uh, were smoking with their oxygen on board, right? This is something that just speeds up the combustion process. And as I said earlier, never, ever, ever leave that oxygen cylinder standing unattended. You should always have one hand on it if it's going to sit straight up. Otherwise, it needs to really lay down. Now, we had talked about oxygen earlier and in, in, in with pulse oximetry. And we had said about 94 to 99. One of the things that we look at today, we really didn't know a whole lot about it. We knew about it, but we didn't know how dangerous things were. Um, as much as 10 years ago, um, particularly with oxygen. And what we found is that there is more oxygen toxicity as a result of oxygen-free radicals, right? So the way that I can desc best describe this to you is if, you know, what, what does a free radical do? Well, free radicals, very similar to the way that an apple oxidizes after it's been exposed. It turns brown. Um, so that is a way in which you may see that some of the free radicals are actually attaching or uh, uh, damaging that tissue, right? So it's not that the brown stuff that's on that apple is bad per se, uh, but it's usually something a lot of people just don't want to eat. So this is where damage to that cellular tissue um, is occurring, and that's because there's excessive oxygen levels in the blood, and this is what oxygen toxicity is. So the American Heart Association actually recognizes that there may be a problem with this. So patients that are experiencing um, uh, uh, myocardial infarctions and they're having signs of heart failure or they're short of breath or they have a room air oxygen saturation of less than 94%, these are folks that we really need to put oxygen on. Now, if people are experiencing signs and symptoms of shock, they need to be placed on oxygen. So almost all of our trauma patients, if they're experiencing shock, we need to put oxygen on them. Hypoxemia is going to be much worse than oxygen toxicity. 
So when in doubt, if you're really unable to measure oxygen saturations reliably, you really got to consider about the use of supplemental oxygen to be administered. So how are we going to administer that oxygen? Well, um, we have a couple ways in which we can do that. And some of those that come to mind right off the bat are going to be things such as a non-rebreather and a nasal cannula are two of the most common ways that we're going to administer oxygen in the out-of-hospital setting. Now, a non-rebreather mask combines the, uh, it takes a mask and it puts a reservoir bag on it. Now, the oxygen is actually filling up that reservoir bag and that bag is attached to a one-way um, or attached to the mask by a one-way valve. So the exhaled gases or whatever the patient is exhaling goes through a flapper valve that is on the cheek areas of the mask. This prevents the patient from rebreathing any type of exhaled gas, right? And gives them oxygen. Now you always need to make sure that that reservoir bag is going to be full before you place it on the patient. You don't want them to try and, I hate to say suffocate, but it does. It makes them feel like they're suffocating a lot. So usually to make sure that you're adjusting the flow rate, the flow rate is typically anywhere between 10 and 15 liters per minute. Now the best way to administer oxygen through a non-rebreather is to apply that anywhere between 10 and 15. Um, if you start at 10 and you notice that the bag is collapsing, then you need to increase the flow rate. And you increase that flow rate until it's no longer collapsing. So it may be at 12, 12 liters per minute. That's the way that you need to take a look at. So when they talk about titrating oxygen to effect, you know, you're looking at 10 to 15. So if you're really struggling for air, it's one of the things we would take a look at. Now, they do come in various sizes. They come in adult, pediatric, and infant. So, um, and yes, when they get down to the infant sizes, they're very, very small. Now, the nasal cannula has probably taken over over the last at least five to 10 years is the preferred oxygen delivery device in EMS. And the nasal cannula um, is a oxygen delivery device that uses two small tube-like prongs that are gonna fit into the patient's nostrils. And it can deliver up to about 44% inspired oxygen when that flow regulator is set anywhere between one and six liters. After you get it about six liters, it's very uncomfortable for the patient. So um, it's pretty typical that that's the only thing you need to go with is up to about two to six liters, or I'm sorry, one to six liters, and you're doing pretty well there. Now, one of the last things we'll take a look at for oxygen administration is going to be um, for trach masks. And when we talk about trach masks, we're talking about patients who have tracheostomies where they're unable to breathe through their mouth and nose. They have a tracheostomy in place. This is going to be a, uh, um, a hole that is in the neck area, right? So a tracheostomy mask actually covers the tracheostomy hole and there's usually a strap that goes around the neck. And this may not be really available for you, but oftentimes you may find this at home for people that already have a, trache uh, a tracheostomy in place. And additionally, you may also note that uh, um, if you do have this, you may have already been aware that you may have some of these patients in your in your own coverage area. And um, because at least I can speak in Pennsylvania, at least as of today, 
and this would be uh, I'm recording this in March of 2019 uh, when that's looking back we are currently not having a requirement for a trach mask so just one of those things to take a look at it's not going to be required on the ambulance well you know what I think that this is part two and I think this would be a great place to uh, take a pause here um, so uh, we'll come back and uh, we'll take a look at part three which is going to continue in with um, artificial ventilation and I think we'll get into a little bit of CPAP as well so as a result of that I think we're going to pause here for a uh, Tim's takeaway and uh, we'll come back a little bit later on in part three and we'll wrap up airway management. We'll see you soon.